0: Bacon this year. I was like, <laughs> I like bacon. Everybody's eating bacon while I preach. Um, but I have a question for you. 1965 raise your hand if you were born. I was 13. Some of you are lying. Some of you were already old in 1965. Anyway, 1965, a movie came out. Starring Max von Sydow, Charlton Heston, and John Wayne. Anybody remember what it was? What? what? Oh, you cheater. You were here in the first service, you big liar. (laughs) The greatest story ever told, right? You've seen it, right? It's a play at every Easter season, right? The greatest story ever told. It's the weirdest looking Jesus in the world. Mox found Sidow. His hair is like shorter than mine in this movie. He doesn't look like Jesus at all, and he has a weird uh, uh, accent. And then you got John Wayne as a centurion looking like a tough guy. It's a very strange movie, but um, it's called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And, and, and what is The Greatest Story Ever Told about? It's about Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. And and where does the the movie begin therefore? In Bethlehem, In Bethlehem right? And 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 where does the story end? No. Not the cross. Something good happened after the cross. Anybody know what? There was a resurrection, right? Is that the end of the story? No, because after the resurrection, he spends time with the disciples and then it comes to uh, the ascension, right? And, and if you go, I mean, really, it's kind of hokey to go back and watch this movie, which was a blockbuster at the time. But, but you go back and watch this movie, and at the, as they come to the empty tomb, and they find the tomb empty, and the women come running out of the tomb rejoicing, and then you see Peter and John running into the tomb. And just as that happens, they begin to play Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, and as the hallelujah chorus is beginning to build, all of these things are happening, and they're just showing you scenes of people rejoicing in the streets because he has risen, and all that. And they're showing you scenes of Jesus with his disciples, and he kind of glows, and it's really cool. And then the very last scene is that as Handel's uh, great, great, you know, piece comes to an end at a crescendo, you see Max von Sydow just sort of disappear. I guess they didn't really have the technology to make him ascend or whatever, but like a cloud comes over him and then they just show the clouds and he's gone. And then the credits roll. Because that's the end of the story, right? (laughs) No, it's not the end of the story. That, my friends, is the beginning of the greatest story ever told. We're still in the story, amen? See, Jesus came because he had a mission, and his mission was to pay the price for our sin and seek and save the lost. And now that the price has been paid for our sin, he has given his church his Holy Spirit, right? Didn't he say that right before he sent it? Don't worry, I'm going to send my spirit. Don't do anything until I send my spirit. Wait for me in Jerusalem until I send my spirit. And then, and then, of course, we see the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we talked about this last week. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come upon the followers of Jesus in a powerful, amazing way that draws this huge crowd, right? And as the huge crowd draws, the, uh, Peter stands up and preaches and shares with them the message of the gospel. And it says, it was early in the morning. It was the, it was the third hour, the third hour of the day, which, which in the Jewish day calendar is uh, 9 a.m., day begins at 6 a.m., right? Third hour is 9 a.m. And at the third hour, there's the sound of a violent rushing wind. There's the tongues of fire. There's the the speaking in tongues. There's the salvation of all these people as Peter begins to preach. And we move into chapter 2 of the greatest story ever told. And the greatest story ever told continues. I just think it's a mistake that we make sometimes that some of us, we think of Jesus' ministry as being something that happened 2,000 years ago we need to remember that according to Jesus himself, his ministry is continuing on today. And who is it continuing through? Us, the church. So we continue to be a part of that. So this is what it looks like. When you go to the book of Acts, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Turn to Acts, excuse me, chapter 3. Because as you read through the book of Acts, which I highly recommend, as you read through the book of Acts, what you begin to see is the continuation of the greatest story ever told. And, and what you find is this is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit of God begins to move among the people of God and change the world. Okay, That's what we begin to see in the book of Acts. And I want you to pick it up with me in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Let me just stop there for a second. Uh, Depending on which translation you're using, mine says now Peter and John were going. Yours might say one day Peter and John were going, but the words one day are not there in the Greek. It just says now. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple, and what, what time was it when they were going? Well, yes, yeah, the ninth hour or three o'clock, right? So, so I don't know if you've ever thought of this before because we're about to see something miraculous happen. And if, you, if you've read the book of Acts, maybe you read chapter two and you saw this miraculous thing happen and then you assume that some time goes by, then you get to chapter three and on another day, there's this other thing that happens. But according to scripture, it never says it was another day. Now, I'm not saying it couldn't have been another day. I'm just saying what it says was at the, at the uh, third hour, the, the people uh, came and heard the gospel with the tongues of fire. And at the ninth hour in chapter 3, they were going to the temple. My assumption is that this is six hours later. Okay, if that's true, what that means is you had the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire, the people speaking in different languages, you had 3,000 people come to know Jesus that day. Now let me just, let's just put that in modern terms. Let's just imagine, if you will, that <clears throat> while I'm preaching this morning, we start out with a group this size, and pretty soon we just start hearing people in the parking lot somebody goes and opens the door and there's a crowd out there. The people come in and they fill the seats, but it doesn't even begin to do it. And they're crowding in around the doors. And we open all the windows and all the doors. The entire parking lot is filled and people are spilling out into the streets. We don't know where they came from. Just God just brought them, right? I, I came here ready to talk to a hundred people. And all of a sudden there's 3,000 people out there and they hear the message. And 3,000 of them give their life to Christ that day and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be baptized, right? Imagine if that happened. I just want you to think practically now. I could tell you what would happen next. We just added 3,000 people to the church. Life would become utter chaos, right? I guarantee you my first job would be to gather some of the leaders and elders of the church and we would get together and we would have a meeting because that's what churches do. And, and we would have a meeting and we would say, oh my, what do we do with 3,000 new converts? We, we were unprepared for this. I guess we're going to have to order more chairs. <laughs> you know, we would not know what to do. And we would be meeting all day long. And we would be doing everything we could to get everybody's email address and everybody's phone number and all that kind of stuff so we could follow up and match up people. And we would go, what are we going to do next week? We can't meet here anymore. We'd have all this chaos. We would have meetings from that moment when we got rid of that crowd of 3,000, probably for about six months. We would just have nonstop meetings because we would not know what to do. Here's what they did. Six hours later, Peter and John went to the temple to pray no meetings, worship. Now, now in the Jewish tradition, what you have was, y- you would have three times a day that were considered the hour of prayer. And in general, if there was a way that you could, whatever you would do, you would stop during that time and you would dedicate that time to prayer. And if you were anywhere near the temple, you would go to the temple and pray. And Literally thousands of people would fill the temple courtyard every day three times a day for this time of prayer, Right? And so that's what's happening here. Pick it up in verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms for those who were entering the temple. So this is a guy we find out later in the story that he was born uh, disabled. We find out that they've been taking him there every day. For probably 20 years, we know that he's 40 years old. We find that out later in the story. He's 40 years old, so probably his entire adult life, 20 or 30 years at least, they have been bringing him on a stretcher every day to the gate of the temple. There are several gates. This gate is called the beautiful gate. They take him to the beautiful gate, and he sits there at the hour of prayer with his cardboard sign right, and his, and his coffee can, and he says, I need help. And he hopes that people will drop some money in his can as they go in to worship as part of their worship that they would care for the hurting, right? And so he's there with a whole lot of other needy people and he's there every day, okay? Now, he's sitting at the gate begging, verse three. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay? Get the picture in your head. Thousands of people heading into the temple. Peter and John among the crowd. They make eye contact with this guy. He asks them for something. And and Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk, and he lifts him up. And as he lifts him up, his his feet and his legs withered from inactivity, straighten and strengthen, and muscle grows back where there had been no muscle. And he does not just stand. It says he leaps and jumps and prays. God and dances into the temple and everybody noticed, right? Now imagine as they're going in, Peter sees this guy and he's just had this experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit and he must have thought something like, huh, I wonder what Jesus would do if he was here. And then he remembers He said he would be with us always through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is here. And so he turns and gives this guy his attention. I think that's what was going on with Peter. Let me tell you what I think was going on with John. John looked at Peter, saw that Peter was interested in this guy, had began to say, don't make a scene, don't make a scene. Oh God, please don't let him make a scene, right? That would be the way they would handle that. And and he reaches out and the guy gets healed. And this amazing, amazing situation, life-changing, world-changing situation takes place. And this just hours, evidently, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And if you keep reading, you'll find out that Peter uses this opportunity to preach, and that when he uses this opportunity to preach, it says 5,000 more men were added that day, not to to mention any women and children that may have been involved. So apparently now, apparently in six hours... The size of the Jerusalem church went from 120 to 3,000 to 8,000 in six hours. Now that's a good day of ministry by anybody's reckoning, right? And and I read this story and, and I see some just powerful lessons that pop out at me. And I want to share a couple of them with you. The first one is this. God uses people who make him their first priority. God uses people who make God their priority. And and I really, when I read this, I just, as a pastor, as a a ministry leader, I read the story and I went, I'm telling you, I would be in meetings forever. I I mean, when 3,000 people get saved, I promise you I would not preach an evangelistic sermon six hours later. We're still trying to sort through the ones who already came. The other thing I probably wouldn't have done because I would have been so busy is I probably wouldn't have said, hey, this would be a good time for me to go worship and pray. I probably would have said, I'm going to skip the afternoon prayer this week. But they didn't. To them, God was first priority. To them, God got their attention even before things that needed to be done. And and when I look at that, I think, how many of us as Christians... At some point in our lives, we heard the gospel. At some point of our lives, we laid down our life to Christ. At some point of our lives, we were in the baptismal water and we had a testimony of salvation and new life. And at some point of our lives, we became born again. And then a lot of us sat down comfortably in a nice padded chair at a church somewhere and watched. And as we watch, we see people who are growing in Christ. We see people gaining maturity. You say, oh, I have this friend, and we became Christians around the same time, and she's just, she's just grown spiritually so much, and I'm just kind of here. I wonder why. And it's my opinion that maybe part of that answer could be, I've been sitting here watching while she's been getting up following Jesus. See, somebody told me a long time ago, it's impossible to steer a ship when it's dead in the water. Can you picture that? A big aircraft carrier out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and the engines go. And it's just floating and bobbing. It doesn't matter where the captain wants it to go. It doesn't matter what the mission is. It, none of it matters. He can steer that wheel all he wants. It's not going anywhere until it starts to move. Some of us are sitting still wondering why our life with Christ is not starting to change. Why He's not bringing us somewhere, making us someone different. Why we don't see amazing things happening through our lives as we share the gospel. The reason that nobody ever comes to Christ when you share the gospel is probably because you don't share the gospel. See, it's not that the Holy Spirit is lacking. It's not that the message of the gospel is lacking. It's that, frankly, a whole lot of us, and I'm going to stand right at the front of the line here and say, this is me. A whole lot of us have very busy agendas. We have phones that give us reminders. Hey, 10 minutes to the next meeting and we're off. And we wonder how come we didn't grow spiritually when we never stopped to read the word. We wonder how come we don't grow spiritually when we have no real prayer life, except maybe before a meal, before we wolf something down and move on to the next thing. We wonder why God's not using us to change the world. We, we go, loving God, loving people, changing the world. You come in here every week and you read it and you hear me talk about it and you must go, it's rhetoric. It's rhetoric. Some people just think it's just a rhetorical statement. It's just a, a little, uh, you know, slogan. It doesn't mean much because, because, first of all, I'm just me. How am I going to change the world? And honestly, seriously, let's just be honest. We look around. There's not that many of us here. How are we going to change the world? You know, there's some mega churches. They could change the world. They have big budgets, lots of people. Let them change the world. But we're just going to kind of gather, and we're just going to kind of have fellowship, and we're going to grow. But, you know, the world, (laughs) we can't change the world. How come God never steers me anywhere? Maybe I'm dead in the water. God uses people who make him their priority. I'm not saying there should be no place on your calendar for work. I'm not saying there should be no place on your calendar for parenting responsibilities or education or whatever the key key things are happening in your life. I understand we all have the same 24 hours a day. But if Jesus is fighting to squeeze in between meetings in your life, you're never going to see world-changing stuff happen. Because you're never going to be changed. God uses people who make Him their priority. You know who else He uses? He uses people who look for needs that need to be met. He looks for people who look for needs to meet. And, and this guy in our story has been crippled, right? He's been crippled since his childhood. And And I want you to just picture this. Think about this. He sits at that gate every day. And you know what that means? That means probably, probably now, whenever the disciples were near the temple at the hour of prayer, they probably walked past them. They've walked past this guy, I don't know, dozens of times, hundreds of times, thousands of times. They've walked past this guy. He's been there Everybody says, oh, he's the guy who's always here. He's always crippled. He's always begging. He's always needy. And they have walked past him again and again and again and again. And apparently it never occurred to them to stop and minister to him. Now, we can can get on the disciples' case for this, but let me just blow your mind. When they walked past him all those times... Guess who was with them the last 3 years? Jesus. Now what that tells me is that Jesus has walked past this guy countless times for 3 years. At least maybe for 30 years. Jesus has walked past this guy countless times. Jesus, the one who casts out demons. Jesus, the one who who restores sight to the blind. Jesus, the one who raises the dead. He has walked past this guy who was begging, and he did not heal him. Jesus. You ever cried out to God for a long time? And not receive the answer you're looking for? It is hard to be on our side of the eternal perspective equation, isn't it? Because God has a plan. We say we understand that. His timing is always right. This healing was perfectly timed for the glory of God. Just like, remember that man that was born blind and Jesus healed him? And they asked him, uh, you know, teacher, why was he born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And he says, neither. It was for the glory of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I let this man be born blind. I let his blindness continue for decades. Because I knew there was going to be a moment when I was going to restore his sight And it would give God the most glory if it happened in that moment. God's timing is perfect for God's glory. I had an aunt that uh, she was born with polio in the 1920s. And I never knew, well, she, she had been crippled since birth. And her her crippling got worse and worse. She also had rheumatoid arthritis. She also had various different kinds of diseases. I mean, she was in a wheelchair. I never knew her outside of a wheelchair. She was always in a wheelchair. And, and, and her limbs were crumpled up, and she was in pain all the time. And somewhere in her teenage years, long before I was born, she met a guy named Jesus who changed her life and stayed crippled. She devoted her whole life to Jesus and stayed crippled. As she became old, she got cancer spread throughout her body. She had tumors so big, there were just football-sized lumps sticking out from her. And she loved Jesus. And she stayed sick. And she died in a hospice bed. And as a 20-something young preacher, my family asked me to preach at her funeral. It was the greatest worship experience of my life. To, to stand up and see these pictures of her and all crumpled up. And to realize that when she was a baby, people prayed for her and she didn't get healed. That as a teenager, she met Jesus and she didn't get healed. People brought her to every healing service that came through town and she did not get healed. And she was prayed for by every Christian that knew her for years and she did not get healed and she died without getting healed. Oh, wait a second, when she died, she got healed. Uh, I remember standing there to this giant congregation of people just weeping over the tragic story of this poor woman who had lived her life this way. And to be able to tell people, listen, she lived her life for the glory of God. She shared the gospel with anybody who would listen. She changed the world through her voice, which was the only thing she could use. And now she's dancing on streets of gold. See? Guys, I, I, I don't know why. I don't understand the tragedies. I don't know why we cry out to God and we don't always get the answer that we need or want. But I know that God is good. I know that God is all-powerful. I know that God's timing is perfect and I know God loves you more than you could ever imagine anybody loving you. His timing is always right and His plan is always for His glory. Now, let's go back And look at Peter, looking at this man. How do you know whether to stop? You're going to leave here today, you're going to get in your car, and you're going to come to an intersection, and there's going to be somebody with a cardboard sign asking for help somewhere. I drove past a group yesterday, small children, signs with a picture of another kid on it, raising money for a funeral. But I've read in articles that 95% of those raising money for a funeral are scams. So what do you do? How do you know? How do you know when to help? How do you know when to get involved? How do you know when to put aside your own agenda and do something different to be interrupted? All I can tell you is this, the needs are endless, but when you are filled with the Spirit, when you are focused on the things of God and making Him your priority, when you're paying attention to the needs of others, you will know. One of my dearest, most trusted friends in the world is Roger Ingebretson. I've known him a long time. He's an elder in this church. By the way, I hope you're praying for Raj. He had surgery last week. It went well, but we won't know for a while how it's going. Is he hanging in there, Deb? Yeah. Okay, good. So we're going to keep praying for Raj. Listen, Roger has been an example to me since I've known him of, of what it is to just take Jesus with you wherever you go. And, and he, he would tell me stories. He, he's a teacher. He'd say, oh, yeah, I was at school today. And this kid came up and asked me about my Bible. And I said, oh, you don't know about the Bible? And he said, no. And I sat and told him the whole gospel message. He, he, he would tell me stories like that all the time. Amazing. I'm out for a walk, and there's a neighbor there watering his lawn. And so I talked to him about Jesus as the water of life. I'm like, what? You did? <laughs> yeah? Well, what do you mean? You don't do that every day? No. I don't even notice people. I have an agenda. I said, "How do you? How do you know? Who did it talk to?" Here's what he said, and I'll never forget it. It changed my life. He said, "This in the morning, in my prayer time, I ask God to open my eyes and show me the opportunities to minister to people, and then I just look for him." I go through my day many times not looking for opportunities to minister to people. I don't know about you. But what would happen in our lives if we began to pray every morning that we would get God's eyes and we would start to notice people and we would start to minister to people as God gives us opportunity. Most of Jesus' miracles took place while he was on his way to something else. It's all interruptions. It's all interruptions. But listen, what God does in the interruptions is often the stuff that changes the world. So let's just ask ourselves, am I so focused on my schedule? Am I so focused on my plan that I can't be interrupted by the Holy Spirit? That I can't be a part of some world-changing thing that He wants to do? Does my time and my talent and my energy uh, and my schedule belong to God? Or does it still belong to me? There's over 200 adults in our church. We're just a a small church. And, you know, people drive by here every day, don't even know there's a church here. And you look at little old you, little old us, you know, how does a church like this really change the world? Let me just ask you. to Think about something. What if just use the number two hundred of us? What if two hundred of us, if every one of us this week went out of our way to meet one need that we wouldn't otherwise be involved in meeting? I'm just. I'm not talking crazy now. I don't mean ten needs a day. I'm talking about meeting one need this week, just in a, for between now and next Sunday. What if you just decided to meet one need? that you wouldn't otherwise pay attention to. That means is that there's 200 of us. That means that four weeks in a month, that's 800 needs in a month that would have otherwise gone unmet that would be met by God through us. And if you just do the math, you realize 52 weeks, 200 a week, that's 10,400 people who had needs met in their life in a year. 10,000 people. I mean, 10,000 people who would have had their need unmet, and those needs to be met by us through the resources God has given to us, love, compassion, money, time, energy, cars, houses, whatever. If we could just open our eyes and for one person a week meet a need, send a card, buy a burger, um, encourage somebody, visit somebody, whatever it is, and and what if just, let's say, out of those 10,000, what if just, say, 95% of them just blew it off and went whatever, but if even just 5% of them turned and looked at Jesus because of that? That would be another 500 people over the course of the year that this little church would see bring to Christ. And then when you start doing the math after that, it blows your mind because now there's 700 of us and everybody's meeting one need a week, it goes crazy. In another year, there's tens of thousands. In another year, it's hundreds of thousands. Soon, it's millions. Soon, it's billions. In our lifetime, the whole world would have their needs met. Imagine. God uses people who look for needs to meet. Another thing God does is He uses people who give what they have. Look at, look at verse 6. He says, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. Jesus had specifically gifted the apostles to heal the sick. He told them, I'm sending you out and I'm giving you the power to heal the sick. And, and so now filled with the Holy Spirit, Having this ability to heal the sick, Peter stops and heals a man in Jesus' name, and it changes everything. You know what? That's what they had. They didn't have silver and gold. He wanted money. He had long since given up on getting better. He was settling for whatever he could get. And they said, what God has for you is so much better than you even want for yourself. I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. They didn't have much, but they used what they had. What has God gifted you with to give? And, and it may not be about material resources, guys. Like I said, it might be about love. It might be about compassion. It might be about, you know, standing up to a bully and and helping somebody who's being mistreated. It might just be a listening ear. It might be including somebody who's always excluded. I don't know what it is. It might just be picking up the phone and calling that long lost friend who never hears from anybody anymore. It, It might not cost you any money. Or it might cost you all your money. Remember the Good Samaritan? He comes along. I mean, he was going somewhere. And here's the guy on the side of the road. It's not his problem. It's not his friend. It's not his people. His own people walking right by him. The Samaritan stops and he ministers to his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to a place where he can get care. And he leaves them his American Express black card. And he says, whatever he needs, it's on me. It cost him a lot. Sometimes it costs a lot but I'm convinced that the world is sick of hearing about a God who loves but not seeing it in His people. You can change that for somebody starting today. Fourth thing, God uses people who are willing to give Him the glory. Look at verse 11. While He was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the so-called portico of Solomon in full amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, "'Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? "'And why do you gaze at us "'as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? "'The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, "'the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, "'the one whom you delivered and disowned "'in the presence of Pilate "'when he had decided to release him. "'But you disowned the holy and righteous one "'and asked for a to be granted to you.' To put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact which we are witnesses of. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect, uh, this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. And he goes on. They run to him. They're staring at him. Oh, wow. A man who has the power to heal. You know what a lot of people would have done in that situation? They would have opened up Peter's healing crusade. They would have bought tents, and they would have started their traveling show. Peter's coming to town. Hey, everybody, it's Peter. You know about Peter. All he has to do is touch you, and you get healed. It's Peter. It's Peter. It's Peter. Peter goes, it is not me. And it certainly ain't John. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the one that deserves the glory. And what did you do with him? You disowned him. You murdered him. You turned against him. But now you can turn to him and he'll give you life. And the scripture says 5,000 more swept into the kingdom that day. God uses people who are willing to give God the glory. Peter was well aware of what he was able to do apart from the Holy Spirit. He'd already been down that road, right? He knew what happens when you take your focus off God. One of the greatest days of his life, he was walking on water with his eyes focused on Jesus. The scripture says he looked at the wind and the waves and he began to sink. He knows what happens when you remove your focus from God. He he understood what happened when when he got on his own agenda he had built a fishing business his whole life, went to work every day to build this business. He could count every fish that he caught and every dollar that he made selling those fish. And he got up and did it every day, day after day after day. was building this great business. It was his life's focus. He was on his agenda. And Jesus came along and said, hey, follow me, I'll make you fish as a man. He left his boats, he left the fish, he left the nets, he left his family, and he went and followed Jesus. And he realized something. Everything we do with Jesus has eternal significance and everything I was doing with the fish was about fish he knew what happens when you get on your own agenda he knew what happens when you're unwilling to give what you have again and again he had he had uh, tried to push the crowds away from Jesus listen don't bother the teacher he has no time he's on his way for something but as I said it was always the interruptions where Jesus did his amazing work Peter, never willing to give up that time, never willing to give up that access. And Jesus constantly teaching him a new way, a different way, that the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And he knew what happens when you make it about yourself instead of giving glory to God. He stood there at the Last Supper in front of everyone and swore that he was above the rest of these guys. He said, I am more committed than they are. They will desert you, but I will not. I swear I will not. Jesus corrected him, and he corrected Jesus, which he loved to do. Again and again and again. I won't, I won't, I won't. And there he found himself sitting by that infamous coal fire, trying to keep warm, and three times he denied him that night, and his heart broke. He knew what it was like when you don't want to give God the glory. But the Peter that we meet in the book of Acts is a totally different guy. The Peter we meet in the book of Acts has been fully restored after being broken. The Peter we meet in the book of Acts is filled with the Spirit. Now he's making God his top priority. Now he's looking for needs to meet in others. Now he's willing to give what he has. And now he's willing to give God all the glory. It ain't about me, it's about God, he said. The old Peter wasn't of much use to Jesus. But this new Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit and making his life about the right things, all he had to do was start walking, and God brought him opportunities to change the world. And all throughout the book of Acts, God uses regular folks like Peter and John and Mary and Paul and Barnabas and Luke and James and all of these folks whose names don't belong in any record books, but they're in the book. They changed the world. Last thing before I let you go. Changed lives, changed lives. Changed lives, change lives. My friends, people are amazed when they see God do what only God could do. What did they do when they saw this? They ran, thousands of them, in every direction to see What was the truth behind this man's changed life? Didn't he used to be crippled? Didn't he used to be begging? Isn't he the one we always saw? How did this happen? And those people came to Jesus that day. Their eternity was changed that day. They went from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus that day. Changed lives change lives. When I met Jesus, I was 14. I was the youngest of four children. I was the youngest of 26 grandchildren. I came from a big family, and we all lived in the same community, and everybody knew everybody, and to the best of my knowledge, other than my aunt, about whom I told you, none of them were Christians. Certainly, no one in my household was a Christian, but God did something. My brother and I, two years apart, apart from one another, separate from one another, without knowledge of what the other was doing, came to know Jesus on the same day. We were the first Christians in our family. Since then, you know, my mom's gone home to the Lord, my dad's gone home to the Lord. Because they met Christ. My brother and my sister, they met Christ. A whole bunch of my cousins and aunts and uncles met Christ. Like the, the Holy Spirit just swept through my family. And it began when my brother and I said yes to Jesus, and they watched our lives change. Change lives, change lives. there's two things I want you to think about. The first is this. If in this story you relate best to the guy who's been crying out to God and not getting an answer, if you've always wanted this whole religious question to make sense to you and it never has, if you've never quite gotten what you wanted from God and you don't understand why, I wonder if this is God's timing for you. I wonder if in all of these years and all of these moments and all of these trials and tribulations, I wonder if for whatever perfect reason, God has decided to wait till now to give you the faith to believe. You've been going through life crippled, and he wants to heal you today. Don't wait. Just as Peter reached out and said, stand up in the name of Jesus Christ. I reach out to you today and say, stand up in the name of Jesus Christ. Let him heal you. Let him restore you. Let him give you life abundantly. It's not a matter of standing up. It's not a matter of raising your hand. It's not a matter of praying a certain prayer. It is a matter of transferring the ownership of your life to him and saying, you know what, Jesus, from now on, I am going to make it about you and stop making it about me. And when that happens in your life, I promise you, the transformation will blow your mind. Because you will go from death into life. And if that's you today, don't leave this place without having a talk with Jesus. The, the second thing is this: uh, for those of us who have been given the Holy Spirit and are followers of Jesus, and, and we have been asked to continue the greatest story ever told, I just want to encourage you, when you leave this room, your job is to continue the greatest story ever told. I, I here's your assignment. I rarely give assignments. This is your assignment. If you don't do the assignment and do your homework, I don't know, something bad will happen to you. Here's here's your assignment. If you don't send this along to everyone on your Facebook list, no. Here's your assignment. Make sure that you pay attention to God and this week allow him to use you to meet one need that you wouldn't have otherwise met. Just ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to show you where. Ask him to show you who. Ask him to show you how. He wants to meet your needs. And he wants to meet other people's needs through you. So if you're worried about giving something away that it will cost you time, it will cost you money, it will cost you comfort, whatever, let me just remind you of something. Everything you have to give away was given to you by God. It's his. So, so I just challenge you, church. Meet one need between now and next Sunday. Something you wouldn't have otherwise done. Somebody that you see that the Lord prompts your heart. You're not sure if it's the Lord. You're not sure what you should do, but if you think you might be prompted, take a chance and go meet that need, because He's not going to steer a boat that's got, that's just sitting in the water. You got to start moving. Meet a de- Meet a need. Because I'm not kidding when I say that God wants us to love God, love people, and change the world. You have been invited to change the world. Welcome to the revolution. Let's stand and pray together. Father, on this day, we, uh, your church, we stand um, humbly before you, asking you, Father, to stir within us a movement of the Holy Spirit, yes. to open our eyes, to see the needs that we walk past every day, to open our hearts to care. Because Lord, it's not that we don't care. It's that we don't care enough. Help us to care like you care. Help us to love who you love. Break our heart with what breaks yours. And then use us as your tools to change the world. Father, for each person who's hurting here today, each person is crying out to you, God, I just pray that there would be um, a palatable sense in which you touch them, yes. that they would know you love them, that you care, and that you are ministering to them. Meet needs, Father, and then through us meet more needs. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.